The following program is brought to you by Jack Miller. It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Forget what they teach you in school. This is real life, not Wall Street, but Main Street. A real show on what's really involved with starting and running a business with all the ups and downs. Our guests will answer your questions and provide you with valuable information. Stay tuned and join in the conversation. When the earth was created, the word came down. Take this world and turn it around. Todd Cohen? Yeah. I'm doing what I can, you know, to stay alive in today's crazy world. I, uh, I, it's tough. The, the, I think the temperature down here in South Sunny Florida dipped down into the 60s overnight a couple of times this week, so that doesn't help. I, I know all the the rest of the country probably, you know, cry me a river. They're probably thinking as they dig out their cars from the snow, but uh, yeah, is your wife making you like chicken soup and tea and all that stuff? I wish. God bless her. She she helps, but she she doesn't take it that far. Uh, but they do have some good places that that make some good soup down here. So. Okay, good. Well, we have a great show today. I don't know about you. Did you watch the uh, presidential State of the Union? I did, as much as I could stomach. I understand. I get very depressed. I don't know about you, but when I watch, when I come home, I'm in a pretty good mood. But when I watch, so- listen to social media and watch TV and all that stuff, I get like depressed and stuff. Just yeah. From- well, you know, I was thinking about we we tend for the last, I guess, three or four months, we've had a lot of political guests on our show, uh, even though it's a business show. And look, I mean. It's very important because I think politics does govern the business world and the landscape to a large degree in our country. I think I think half the people want it to do less so, and, and half the people are okay with how much it does reach into our pockets. But Well, we got a fantastic guest today. In fact, the guest today, his name is Michael Johns. He's gonna, we're going to put him on in about a minute or so. But yeah. uh, this guy is- Tea Party for, Michael Johns? Tea Party Michael Johns. This guy was a presidential speechwriter for George H.W. Bush. He was one of the founders of the Tea Party. This guy is all over the place. And people think, I'm not saying he's not, but people are so passionate about this guy. Uh, and they he's like a hero to some people. And probably just, just, just Rightfully so, rightfully so. What's the word? Right. I, I don't know. Whatever it is. So um, you know, I'm super excited about having Michael on the phone. I have tons of questions for him. So let's bring him on. Michael, are you with us? I am, Jack. How are you? Good, my friend. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are things in paradise? Florida. Hey, you, I, I know you went to school in Florida, so uh, it's very nice. I can't complain. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, I mean, look, in the middle of January when you have a high of 75 and you look out of palm trees and, and crystal blue waters, things aren't so bad. Michael, yeah, that's I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you heard me introduce you, but um, what I said was that, you, first of all, I said you've led, it, I think, an incredible life. I have a bunch of questions for you. You know everything from a presidential's or a White House speechwriter to one of the being in the room when they founded the Tea Party to just unbelievable stuff, unbelievable stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I was mm-hmm. gonna say. So maybe I'll just start with, and I, I obviously want to talk about the uh, the State of the Union, presidential politics. But I got to ask first: How did you get to be a presidential speechwriter or a White House speechwriter? How did you get that? It's like. Unbelievable. I guess, yeah, there's sort of like two answers to that question. Because, I mean, the first would be, here's the long road that I had taken, you know, all the associated uh, development of skill sets and 
work in the field. Uh, all of that, of course, was necessary. But at the end, it's like a lot of things in life. I think I was kind of at the right place in the right time. I'd been working with Governor uh, Tom Kane in New Jersey at that time, and he had been uh, running the Bush Quail 92 effort in uh, New Jersey. He was probably one of President Bush 41's closer uh, political advisors. And I did an op-ed for him and published in the New York Times, actually, on I think it was like three uh, sort of reasons that uh, Bush 41 warranted another four years over what was then the pres- it was sort of the presumptive nominee of Clinton. It it was I think still early in '92, and uh, it came up the next day in the White House press conference. There were some questions about it. Um, I think the administration was generally pleased. I'm not trying to say this disparagingly, but the administration I think at that point was sort of struggling for its message. It had betrayed the no new taxes pledge and take a, a lot of criticism for that perhaps justifiably so and um and it was uh you know facing this sort of unknown political entity in Clinton who was promising you know stars in the moon and was gaining traction so uh it was sort of a moment of crossroads for that administration when i think they still felt the race was winnable they had hugely important policy topics on the uh, front burner, including uh, the end of the Cold War and uh, obviously Operation Desert Storm. And I'd sort of come into it with a good degree of foreign policy and, you know, political background. And uh, so there's sort of a long answer that it was, you know, many years of, of hard work kind of developing this skill set and uh, the depth of knowledge that I have in the field. And then ultimately all of that would have been insignificant if I hadn't been in the right place at the right time. And that's the story, as I've so, kind of come to learn of most people's um, experiences with something that's so, you know, rare to obtain. I mean, I think there were seven speechwriters of the president of the United States. If you look even now, there's probably, I would say, less than two dozen living. Um, so, uh, 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 more speech, yeah, so it's a... It's a not terribly common profession. So what I what I say, you worked hard, you made your own luck. You know, because if you didn't pay the price and do all those things, it probably wouldn't have presented itself to you. Yeah, I think so. And 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 I and I was really aligned with that administration. I mean, my my views have evolved over uh, the years. I'm one of these um, people that I mean, I'm really committed to what I would say is political truth over partisanship over, you know, one side or the other. I mean, my my view is that people of the country um, deserve competent, uh, capable representation that places them first. And I feel, like a lot of Americans now feel, that they've not really had that kind of representation in Washington for a long time, not even close to having that. I, 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 um, so it, it was... Um, so I guess that's the other thing that's sort of intriguing about my background is I have been a part of what I think many uh, today would call the a GOP establishment. And yet, uh, you know, as you alluded to with my role in the founding of the Tea Party movement, I've been kind of at the forefront over the last um, several years and kind of leading the resistance to the GOP establishment, which I think I've really come to believe is not best serving the interests of the country. as The, the entire Democratic Party is not either. Um, so it's been a sort of an evolution of thought on my part. 
Well, it's interesting. You have such a diverse background because you started, I guess, as a policy guy uh, and of all places like South Africa and Kenya and all these countries. How did kind of that evolved? Well, I mean, really, if you go back almost to University of Miami days, I started to, I mean, if I were going to sort of say, here's the ideology of my interest in politics, it, I started to develop it maybe, you know, as a as a teenager a little bit, thinking it was interesting. Uh, but ultimately, my views got solidified down there. And a lot of it had to do with Cuban-American friends of mine who uh, shared with me all of these unbelievably horrific uh, stories of oppression under um, Castro's Cuba by their uh, par- under their parents, and you know the the um, uh, stories about human rights um, violations and the um, the um, taking of land from its proper owners and the whole story of people fleeing the island um, after the revolution and you know setting up in in the United States. So I mean that was profoundly influential to me. And then, you know, I was politically engaged in, um, at the University of Miami, I'm president of College Republicans, and was, um, you know, I did a few internships in Washington. I was involved in um, founding a conservative student newspaper there. And um, I think the first thing I did in foreign policy was I actually, believe it or not, went out with the Nicaraguan Contras in 1980. I think it was January of 84, when the Reagan doctrine was just really at its uh, point of emerging as a, as a really a, a new kind of viable uh, foreign policy option to um, new past administrations. And then from there, you know, it, I joined the Heritage Foundation after um, getting out of the U and um, spent five years there. Um, including as a foreign policy analyst, and I did, as you correctly said, I focused a lot on developing world issues, um, and I was drawn to them. I'm still drawn to them um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, at the time, they were kind of, I think, you know, a, a more of a centerpiece to Cold War conflict than a lot of people recognized. Um, that was the hot war of the Cold War. I mean, really, the European front was, you know, mostly one of, mutual threat, but not one of, you know, ongoing conflict per se. But they, but in these regions, in South Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, that's where this war was being fought. And um, and then, of course, there were human rights issues, development issues. I believe U.S. interests in those regions. And, um, and so I kind of um, gravitated into that. I traveled extensively in all of those areas. Pretty close. So you you were a business uh, major in, in college down here, right? Yeah, I was economics major in the business school. So how do you view the business of politics? I mean, to a degree. I, mean, is, I, I guess that's a, a double good question. Because right. it, I, here's what I would say: um, it's never depicted this way as bluntly as I'm about to say it, but it is a business. And um, the sooner, I didn't really reach that conclusion when I was working in Washington. I mean, I clearly realized that there was a lot of money involved in politics, and I always felt that that money was, you know, more or less not helpful for the most part to the process usually, um, and gave disproportionate voice to certain um, interests at the expense of other interests. But I've really come to the conclusion, as I think many Americans, even casually following it, have 
come to the conclusion that, that it absolutely is a business. And I think this is one of the biggest concerns that a lot of Americans who may be inclined to self-identify as Republicans have with the established Republican Party today is that we've sort of had the sense, and I certainly have the sense, that winning and advancing ideas is not appear to be the primary agenda or objective of that party. Um, I mean, and, and certainly the races they ran in 08 and 12 were um, really poorly done. I mean, uh, even if you like those two candidates, um, the, the campaigns themselves were very insular. The message was very diluted. And ultimately, you say, well, why is it? I wouldn't they sort of gravitate to victory and advancing the agenda and you read the RNC platform, it's a very good document in my view, but those have never seemed to be at the forefront in recent years um, of the agenda of either political party. And the sooner you realize you've got all of these consultants and uh, lobbyists and big industry money and special interest money and, you know, billionaires, uh, a handful of whom control a lion's share of resources on both sides. And by the way, they, you know, their big money is as involved, if not more involved, in the Democratic Party today than they are the Republican Party. I don't think that's fully appreciated, but it's true. It has become a business, and the business is one of keeping the business going and growing it. And that doesn't always include a lot of consideration. In fact, it rarely does include consideration about what the impact of this whole thing is on the American people. And meanwhile, as things have moved along over the last two or three decades, we've seen you know, obviously the um, massive departure of uh, jobs and even entire industries to foreign countries, bad trade deals. We've seen an immigration policy that, to my best sense, doesn't make any, uh, there's no logic behind any of it except to deflate wages and um, further complicate the American employment situation. Obviously, a, a foreign policy that is often a head-scratcher, you know, to sort of say, how is this or that in the best interest of the United States? Why are we not doing this or that? And I think, like you say, I mean, it's essentially the business of politics has been separated from what should be uh, a politics rooted in placing the American people first. And uh, simplified, as much of a cliche as that might sound, that's how I would define myself today is that I believe we need to make decisions based on what's in the best interest of the United States, get away from maybe some of the more rigid um, ideological um, positions that I think have been driven by big money, and look at the practical reality of what the impact of public policy is in the lives of American people, because the American people are hurting. They are hurting, and they're hurting at all levels. Michael, um, Michael so. I, I don't mean to interrupt. We, we got to take a commercial break, but when we get yep. back, I want to talk about exactly that. How and that's sort of like the, I think why Trump's doing so well. We're going to talk about the Tea Party, why people are hurting, and how to put people first. So stick with us for a couple minutes. We'll be back in two, three minutes. Michael, thank you. You're the best. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. Don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. 
Do you need long-term real estate financing? Gelt Financial is located right here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and provides 30-year terms with no balloon payment whatsoever on non-owner occupied residential and commercial real estate. With a minimum loan amount of only $75,000 all the way up to $5 million, we provide common sense underwriting and a quick closings. We don't require tax returns whatsoever. Call right now at 561-221-0900. Again, that's 561-221-0900. Did you invest in a non-liquid real estate partnership? Do you want and need liquidity? There's finally an answer. Quick Liquidity is a direct buyer of real estate minority interest and tenants in common investments across the country. To find out if we would buy your non-liquid investment, call us at 561-221-0881 or visit us at quickliquidity.com. That's quickliquidity.com. If you're buying, selling, or investing in real estate, call attorney Dan Kaskow, 561-237-6822. Mr. Kaskow is board certified by the Florida Bar as an expert in real estate law. He's been practicing law for more than 20 years and is a partner in the law firm of Sachs Sachs Kaplan with offices in Boca Raton and Tallahassee. Dan Kaskow handles real estate, corporate, condominium, and homeowner association matters throughout Florida. From residential purchases and sales, bulk buying and selling of condominium units, to purchases and sales of commercial properties, contact attorney Dan Kaskow at 561-237-6822 for your real estate, corporate, and community association legal needs. Attorney Dan Kaskow, 561-237-6822. Non-attorney spokesperson for attorney Dan Cascal. For up-to-date news, the latest info, contests, and more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at 880thebiz. Where money talks. Welcome back to It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Call us at 305-541-2350. Follow us on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at HJackMiller1. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Miller again with Todd Cohen, and we're lucky enough, and I really mean lucky enough, to have Michael Johns with us, the famed political analyst, commentator. This guy has a resume as long as two of my arms. Michael, I, I, well, I have so much to to go talk to you about, but people are sick and tired of what's going on with politics. But before we get into that, maybe if you could give us a little background, like how did the Tea Party start? Like, what does it happen? Like three or four guys just say, look, I can't take it anymore. And you guys get together over lunch or dinner. uh, Like like your question on how you become a presidential speechwriter, you know, it's uh, when I tell you this, this is the honest to God truth about how this movement developed. Um, You know, as you might recall, Back in early '09, uh, Rick Santelli had that fa- that really famed uh, rant on the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, in which he said, "Yeah, I think he was addressing the issue of, of uh, housing subsidies," and said, "You know, what this country needs is a is a, a giant second Tea Party rebellion." And uh, a lot of the traders in Chicago at that time really responded real positively to it, and a lot of us saw it, me included. Um, I saw it both live. Because uh, I happened to have been watching CNBC that day, and I also um, saw. Uh, then, of course, it was repeated and sort of went virally viral online. And a number of us, um, the exact number—I mean, it could—it certainly was not more than a dozen 
uh, it was somewhere I would say between like eight and twelve of us um, that were nationally involved and were somewhat inspired by the Santelli. Uh, rant uh, organized a series of conference calls, and we agreed on those calls that, that April 15th, tax day obviously, of um, 2009, that we would organize rallies across the country to try, try to draw attention to the growth of big government, the overtaxed nature of, the, of uh, our tax systems on the Ameri- and the burden that had on the American people, the illogical counterproductive subsidies of certain industries at the expense of other industries, and the, and the direction that, that that administration, the Obama administration, was already taking, uh, even in its, uh, what was then, I guess, it's maybe uh, third month or so. And so we organized these events, I mean, hundreds of them all over uh, the country. Obviously, it grew beyond that core organizing group, but the core organizing group sort of, in turn, turned to their contacts, and and it, and it grew from there. I, I spoke that day in Boston, right sort of at the location of the Boston Tea Party, right by it at uh, Boston Common in, in um, Center City, Boston. I spoke that evening then again at New York City at the uh, mayor's um, uh, office in a huge rally. Both these were huge. I mean, this, I think one in New York was over 13,000 people. The response was unbelievable. Um, I can't say in retrospect uh, that it was a tribute to how well organized we were, because I didn't at least in my comparison to things I've done historically, I thought we were a little bit disorganized. Uh, but it certainly ended up being a reflection of the massive passion that existed out there, meaning there was this demand for a movement and for an avenue of voice to these issues that was not being provided at the time that we clearly provided. So this hasn't really been widely reported, but it's a fact. I mean, we really didn't envision this thing going. We, it was like a one-day event. We really did, in fact, want to have... A very successful day. We really did want it to be a national news story, as it obviously was. Uh, but I don't think any of us on that call, in retrospect, at that moment, said, "Hey, this is a movement that's going to endure and grow to really, quite honestly, what's been the singular largest grassroots political movement in American history." I mean, it's it depends how you would quantify, say, the civil rights or anti-Vietnam war movements. But I think by most measurements. Tea Party movement has probably included 30 to 40 million Americans. It could even be larger, I think, uh, going forward. And uh, lots of people have been drawn to it. So we focused on that one day and um, took off. No matter where you were in the country, it doesn't matter where you were. You were within probably a short driving distance to a Tea Party event. And some of these were. You know, literally tens of thousands of people um, in in major urban areas, and some of them were smaller, hundreds of people, but all of them had an immense passion, and that passion was captured both in the media coverage of the day, and then also in all of us more or less saying, "Wow, you know, we really right." So, we really, so, like, we knew we were onto something, but I don't think we knew how, how badly the American people wanted to have this voice in an, in a movement that was not rooted in any partisan alliances and yet expressed the level of rage that they had about what was and still is going on in uh, American politics. Right. So to, to rehash for all of our listeners out there that probably dozed off during social studies or political science classes, 
you know, the Boston Tea Party was when we, you know, historically threw all the tea uh, into Boston Harbor to sort of revolt against taxation without representation. And my question to you is, do you think it's more important to the American people today um, to have no taxation or to have greater representation or greater voice into uh, into politics? And I... Well, what's involved, what's really changed is, like, if you go back to the 1980s, say if you look at the Reagan election in 80 and the re-election of, of Reagan in 84, the idea of, you know, depicting liberals correctly as tax-and-spend liberals was always like a political trump card. You would win with that as soon as you could depict that they were yet another big-spending, big-taxing uh, political leader. But what's evolved, what's changed over the years that has made, made the issue of taxes still important, but less so than it was then, is the fact that you now have half the country not paying federal income taxes, um, partly because of the structure of our tax system um, and the um, the marginal rate nature of it, and also a product of the fact that the number of underemployed and unemployed um, and disabled as well. Americans has grown so hugely. So right now, when you say um, when you run exclusively, say on a, an agenda of cutting taxes, that there's a lot of people that feel really passionately about that. And clearly, a large percent of this country remains to be hugely overtaxed, and, and that's money that could be allocated to more productive ways and ways that were more helpful to the economy generally. But it doesn't have the effect that it used to have because you have really at the end of the day a fewer percentage of american voters that are actually paying federal taxes so i feel that it's kind of more the latter that it's more this culture of feeling that we have you know 535 elected officials in congress we've got this huge administration we send all these people down there ostensibly to represent us, really, at the end of the day, to make decisions that we presumably just don't have time to do because we're pursuing our own families or our own careers or or whatnot. And just over time, it's become so abundantly clear that they give almost no consideration to the Senate. So let me me ask you in in another way, actually, that'll that'll be more clear. At the bottom of the market, when when the Wall Street basically fell apart in 2008 and then 2009 when we were clawing out of it, they started the stimulus package. And I guess every family in America, and they, they, you know, the Obama administration made a point to, to let us know, would receive a check, a refund in the mail of X dollars, um, you know, that, that occurred in 2009. And I think it occurred again in, in 10 and 11. It was like $300. Right. And, and my question to you is I'm not belittling $300 at all. I'm sure it meant a lot, especially to certain people at or below the poverty line. But my question to you is, do you think that people would rather have not received that check and had a, a greater voice and known that their voice was going to be heard into government um, in, in the way of having you know some sort of survey or write-in questionnaire sent to each home and then the results of which would actually change something? I, yeah, I think essentially um, what happened with... Uh, the entire stimulus package, and then obviously the largely uh, the housing-based correction that le- and banking uh, issues that led up to it was a, a, a real solidification in, in the minds of most Americans 
that we had this elite on Wall Street and in Washington that would routinely place their own interests above those of the American people. So when you think about what was the first thing that really happened um, as that entire process rolled out was we, you know, too big to fail, we have to bail the banks out. And even if you said it, and obviously I, I, I don't agree with that, and I don't think most Americans agree with it, and certainly the Tea Party movement uh, is unified against it, but regardless of what your view on it was, I think it was even concerning the way that, that was the first sentiment that Washington had, was to always gravitate to um, these institutions. And in the eyes of a lot of the American people have kind of been uh, co-conspirators in uh, these very problems. I mean, you don't have to look much deeper than the the way um, you know they had bad loans extended and then bet against those loans, and you know clearly were operating in ways that um, were legal, uh, technically legal, but were nonetheless uh, utterly counterproductive to the American economy and the American people, and and you know presumably just. There, there was no consideration even of that, and then that, and then you, and then you project the fact that that inclu- that existed as well in the um, in DC policymaking. And I think you finally had this this immediate awakening that these like institutions that we've looked up to as being you know the brightest minds in the country and you know ostensibly at least somewhat concerned about the direction of our country, have, you know, really put their own self-interest above everything else. And uh, particularly for middle-income Americans, I would say, which I think has been... Uh, so it, it's, yeah. it's, it's like the government stuck us, the institution stick us, everyone's sticking the American people. That's, I think, yeah. how people feel. Uh, yeah, and I don't think that, I mean, that's the perception, but I think that's also the reality. I, I, mean, I think if you were going to look at the policies that have played out, whether it's bad trade deals, whether it's the open border and immigration, whether it's the fraudulent nature and, and uh, damaging nature of these uh, H-1B visas and the, um, the, uh, the the marriage visas, all of which are just basically used to bring more people into the country from, you know, really Mike, foreign cultures that Ma- are going to take jobs. Michael, I hate um, I hate to interrupt you. We got to yep. take another commercial break. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We got to no take problem. a traffic break. When we get back. I want to talk about what you think of the presidential election today uh, and the um, state of the union. And then I want to ask you about immigration, all kinds of stuff. So I'll bullet point you, throw the questions at you when we get back. We'll be back in three minutes, everyone. Thank you. Don't turn that dial. We will be right back. Are you tired of dealing with unreliable banks and brokers who charge upfront fees and never deliver on their promises? You don't have to. Gelt Financial Corporation has been in business since 1989 and offers a stated income loan program for non-owner-occupied residential and commercial real estate investors. No tax returns required. What are you waiting for? Call Gelt Financial right now at 561-221-0900. Again, that's 561-221-0900. 561-221-0900. Did you invest in a non-liquid real estate partnership? Do you want and need liquidity? There's finally an answer. Quick Liquidity is a direct buyer of real estate minority interest and tenants in common investments across the country. To find out if we would buy your non-liquid investment, call us at 561-221-0881 or visit us at quickliquidity.com. That's quickliquidity.com. 
locked in to 880 The Biz. South Florida's only business talk station. 880 The Biz. Where money talks. Welcome back to It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Call us at 305-541-2350. Follow us on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at HJackMiller1. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Miller back with Todd Cohen, and we're lucky enough to have Michael Johns on the phone. Michael, thanks for sticking out the break. Michael, I have so many questions for you, so can I just throw out some rapid-fire questions, give it like a minute or two, because you know what? It's not often that the American public and I get to talk to someone of your experience and education and just stature, and I have tons of questions. Um, What do you think of the... The fact that compromise in Washington is a bad word today. In other words, it seems that both parties dig in their heels and like if if anyone compromises, like they get voted out of office. To me, compromise is like part of life. That's just life. Yeah, the the rub is always in the details. And um, one of the concerns that uh, I think is legitimate for Republicans and conservatives is that the compromises that typically have been made have been you know, accommodations to uh, left of center or democratic thinking. I mean, you could you could say, look at the um, uh, immigration and uh, border issues of 1980, where Reagan granted amnesty to uh, millions and was promised that the border would be secured. Amnesty was granted, and then the uh, border never was secured. You could look even, I cited earlier about uh, being in the Bush administration, about the violation of the no new tax pledge. Well, in a way, that was a real calculated decision where it was supposed to be a concession that Democrats were insisting on for taxes in, in exchange for massive uh, cuts in spending. The tax pledge was broken and taxes were raised, uh, but the spending cuts never came. So, are you so saying it's comprom- been a real tough time, I think, for a lot of conservatives because, and Republicans because, to say, you know, because they got this, burned. Co- this concept is really. It led us to compromising the views, which would maybe be more acceptable if it was leading to a reciprocal I got you, because um, they got burnt. But there's been very little in the way of reciprocity. I got you, because we got burnt. I got you, got you. Uh, you told me a fascinating story, I don't know, last week or two weeks ago about Richard Nixon. I think it's a, just a great story. Do you mind sharing it with everyone? I think it's fantastic. Well, I, you know, I sort of, when, when I mentioned, like, what were the early influences, I mean, and I'm not saying that I gravitated to Nixon as a fan or a critic. I wouldn't say I was either. I was fascinated with him as a political figure and um, equally fascinated with the people that were around him, uh, some of whom were hardened conservatives, some of whom were just more, you know, uh, cutthroat political types. Um, And the way that all integrated and and the direction of that um, whole administration. But I had the good fortune of meeting Nixon before he died, and, uh, you know, he had and he gotten to know me a little bit as well and, and my work. Uh, so it was, you know, when I look back on sort of high points in this now 30 years of involvement, um, that was really important to me. That was really, really helpful. And, um, you know, I think, I think the quote I gave you was uh, he had been working very closely with a, 
political Republican political uh, consultant called Roger Stone, who in fact was involved with the Trump campaign until recently. By, by the way, Ro- think, Roger was yeah. on Roger was on the Stone was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he's coming back in two weeks. So we know Roger. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a really intriguing guy. Oh I yeah, I call him a friend. He um, he you know, in fact, he and he's uh, lived in uh, Dade County too, as yep. you know, for a good part of his life. Um, and, Miami Beach. But so he, what did um, Nixon tell you about Stone, or what did he say to you? So yeah, he I, says. So, you, so he says, sure, Michael Johns, you're part of the Stone Mafia. That's good. That's good. And I said, well, it's not. It's not really a mafia, you know. Because <laughs> he goes, no, it's good. It's good. You know, like just in the exact voice that he would use, and that sort of stayed in my mind throughout. I, I, I thought and, that. Was... I mean, I read. I read every book you could possibly imagine about the Nixon administration. I particularly remember End of Power and the Haldeman and, and Ehrlichman books, and they were. Just, but, to me, the, the, it was just a fascinating era as it related to the U.S.-China relationship, uh, as it related to the controversial decision of we, of completely getting off of the gold standard at that juncture, related we, to uh, the conservative criticism that existed toward the Nixon administration, the way they handled the Vietnam War, uh, the inner battles with Kissinger. I mean, it was all. It's, I just think it was an intriguing period. Not that any other period's been less intriguing since, but. That really just seemed to be a amalgamation of incredibly uh, intriguing political we, figures. We had yeah. on the show last week a, a guy by the name of Jeff um, Shepard, who was part of the Nixon defense team, and he just wrote a brand new book uh, on the Watergate scandal. And in fact, Michael, I'm going to send you a copy of it. Fantastic. He comes up with new evidence that really basically says that Nixon and the whole team was denied due process. Um, was really almost legally set up, but I don't want to get into that too much now. A bunch of other questions. Well, how cool was it to be a White House speechwriter? And was it like uh, Sam Seaborn in the West Wing? I know I'm a big, big West Wing fan. So, like, how cool was it? Yeah, I always say when people say, "What is it like the West Wing?" I say, "We hear like these may sound trivial, but here are the differences. Number one, uh, there was such a social dimension to the West Wing. You know, uh, I don't the, it, the White House functions like most." Um, offices function, meaning, you know, you'll have some casual sort of professional relationships, maybe you have a few people that you'll consider friends, but it's, there's so much work, and it's also important, it's not really much that level of social dimension that was depicted there, and then, I don't know, they, I just, some of the things, like the the way um, um, the um, the interaction of people is, and that it's, you know, it's a, it, it ultimately, unfortunately, it's a, you know, it's still a, a part of the government bureaucracy in a way. And you know, the political appointees of which I was one in the administration are usually the people that are doing the lion's share of the work. But you also have all of these career uh, appointees for whom it's really just another job, another day at the and, office. Um, when, when you write yeah. a speech, like when you write a presidential speech, how long does that take? How do you do it? How many edits do you have to make? Who edits it? Like, what? Take us through that process briefly. Yeah, and that varies. That varies um, totally based on you know what the speech is, the magnitude of its importance, and the complexity of the top of the of the, of the subject matter. I mean, if you're in there as a presidential speecher, I think the the operating presumption is that you kind of know the um, the basic fundamentals of the the message and and even the communication style of the president. Um, but if it says something like a State of the Union, which we just had the other night, I mean, very commonly that would involve, um, you know, including input from all of the various uh, departments and, um, and you know, secretaries 
of um, those departments and policy input. And I mean, those are really important, and they're they're done with a broad range of input. And then other things less so. And um, you know, a really important speech in my mind would be one where the president would put, you know, sort of a lot of thought into the content of it before it was actually delivered. The on average, I mean, I never really did the math on this, but it seemed to me that the president was given on average about two speeches a day. So it's not not even possible from a time management standpoint to put that much focus into the preparation. So you have to ultimately rely on uh, on speech writers to handle that. And if it's more routine matters, say like a rose garden um, speech or ceremonial event, uh, those might fall exclusively on on the speech writer. The speech writer ultimately does have. Uh, at least in the Bush administration, had uh, pretty much a you know a final say on the what? on the content because Got they would be held responsible for that content. Got it. Um, what do but you? Th- the pro- but stuff would be vetted around the administration pretty commonly. Gotcha. What do you think uh, uh, President H. W. Bush's legacy will be? Well, I think it's ultimately going to be the the I believe the biggest accomplishment was the peaceful. Um, navigation of the end of the Cold, Cold War, War, okay, which could have very easily gone another direction. Gotcha. Now, um, I got. Yeah, you. And then, and then the, the close second, obviously, is the um, you know Operation Desert, Desert Storm, Storm and the yep. fact that uh, whatever you feel of U.S. involvement in that region, and I'm sympathetic to both sides, really, in some ways. But the the idea of allowing Iraq to have occupied Kuwait, which would have happened, had President Bush not intervened had a lot of really ominous uh, long-term uh, potential uh, okay. impact, Got both it. on economically, you know, from a, from a foreign policy standpoint, and even from the message that it would have sent the world. So I'd say that was probably a close second. Okay, I want to bring it to present day. Donald Trump, what do you think of him, his campaign, the phenomenon, the Trump phenomena, the whole thing? Yeah, so I have to separate here. I mean, from the standpoint of the Tea Party movement itself, no, I'm, I'm asking we're you. really respectful of everybody's views, and the views vary pretty widely. There's a lot of support for Ted Cruz, maybe a little less so, but some for Rubio and, and other candidates. But I have, from the moment uh, that Donald Trump announced, been a very big supporter. Um, and I'm not a blind apologist by any means. I'm not saying he's perfect, but I think he's perfect for this moment, if that makes sense. I Meaning, ten years ago, I may not have seen value in his candidacy. Ten years from now, I may not see value in it. But I think for the issues that we're confronting right now, which really require a de-rooting of this corrupt system and a putting America back, putting American people back first as far as the consideration on every policy agenda, I think he's the man for the moment. Um, and I'm hopeful that he'll be the nominee. The good news is that there's a lot of positive, great candidates in there, and if that doesn't happen, I still, you know, I'm an enthusiastically support whoever the, the do you, GOP do you think we, uh, we only have nominee is, but I'm a fan. We, I count me among, I'm a Trump fan. Uh, it seems a lot of people, and we only have an, another minute before the next break, the last break, but do you think if he's the nominee, he can beat Hillary? Yes, I have no doubt about it. And I also think that to look at any of these polls right now, it's too premature. I mean, once he hones in on Hillary Clinton, um, the the book on her is pretty thick. And I think the American people are going to quickly see that Trump is vastly better alternative between the two. I have no doubt that he'll prevail. And apparently there's a poll out today, which I haven't seen, that uh, is starting to quantifiably show head-to-head that he would uh, prevail. 
though I would be too concerned about the polls right now. He, if he becomes the nominee, he'll be the next president of the United States. Do you? Okay, another kind of oddball question. I just w- was reading last night or this morning that Al Jazeera's Al Jazeera or whatever it's pronounced is closing mm-hmm. up, and of course Al Gore sold it to them for I don't know two hundred million or five. He didn't sell Al Jazeera. No, to them. He no, sold, he sold his, them, his network. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. to them. Right. But let me ask you a question: If a Republican, if for example a Dan Quayle type or any or Dick Cheney. Uh, it seems that Gore got a pass by that on doing that. Uh, oh, and, and what do you think of that? Just real quickly, we got a minute before we take the last commercial break. What do you think the that whole Al Jazeera's and Al Gore thing? Well, Al Jazeera has been controversial because it's been the go-to source for Al Qaeda and the way of disseminating a lot of their messages. I'll give you my own experience. I've appeared on that network many times um, and found it to be as balanced as any other mainstream media network, which I guess isn't saying too much. I mean, it is a left-of-center persuasion, but not any more so than any others. And as far as the Al Gore sale, which was controversial at the time and has become even more controversial, I think, of uh, what was the name of a current TV, um, which I think you're right, I think it was about $200 million he got for that. The, the, I believe there's a lot of corruption within the environmentalist movement in this country, in its leveraging political contacts and the fact that certain industries stand to benefit from subsidies, et cetera, and you know, it really deserves ongoing um, scrutiny. Got it. We got to we got to take a last commercial break, and then when I get back, what what, what I really wanted to talk about? What did you think of the State of the Union? Uh, yep. So give us two minutes. We'll be right back, and we'll jump into the State of the Union. Thank you. Don't turn that dial. We'll be right back. Do you need long-term real estate financing? Gelt Financial is located right here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and provides 30-year terms with no balloon payment whatsoever on non-owner occupied residential and commercial real estate. With a minimum loan amount of only $75,000 all the way up to $5 million, we provide common sense underwriting and a quick closings. We don't require tax returns whatsoever. Call right now at 561-221-0900. Again, that's 561-221-0900. Did you invest in a non-liquid real estate partnership? Do you want and need liquidity? There's finally an answer. Quick Liquidity is a direct buyer of real estate minority interest and tenants in common investments across the country. To find out if we would buy your non-liquid investment, call us at 561-221-0881 or visit us at quickliquidity.com. That's quickliquidity.com. Welcome back to It's Down to Business with Jack Miller. Call us at 305-541-2350. Follow us on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at HJackMiller1. Hello, everyone. This is Jack Miller again with Todd Cohen, and we're lucky enough to have Michael Johns with us. Michael, we only have five minutes left, and I feel bad. I don't, I, the time just flew by. You can make a whole documentary on you. But what do you think, what do you think of the State of the Union? Address. I thought it was exactly as um, I thought it would play out. I think you have a um, a man who spent almost his entire adult political life uh, saying one thing and doing another. And the State of the Union, uh, to be blunt, is very bad. Uh, it's as bad as it's ever been in the uh, lifetime of most uh, living Americans. I don't think by any metric that you would use, I don't care if it's related to 
you know, the economic state of the country and its citizens or uh, the social stability and uh, cohesiveness of the American people or our foreign policy, national security, positioning abroad, every one of those metrics and all of the subsects that you would place under, uh, under each one of them have deteriorated considerably over the last seven years. Some of them have deteriorated unbelievably so. Uh, so, you know, like on the economy, it, it just seemed to be it lacked honesty on every level, and uh, I think that kind of gets to the point of like what I was saying earlier. That I think that's what's disturbing the American people. If he had gotten up there and sort of and sort of at least been forthright with the fact that you know, a we have a more Americans not in the in the workforce today than in the history of the country on a on a. Um, uh, on, a, on a per capita percentage basis. We have uh, an economy that is just offloading in, in bulk jobs to foreign he's just uh, countries illogically. So he's just, no he's, border. He's out of touch. An illogical, you know, just on and, on and on with the fact that there's almost no trend there that's moving in the right direction. Not even if you were going to really look for one, could you really identify one. And then, you know, I think the country itself is politically more divided than it's ever been. Um yeah, I, yeah. I mean, not, neither side really listens to each other anymore. I don't. I can't remember the last time I've ever seen anyone who's been persuaded by, you know, anything Obama said or done, and said, so, "Oh, gee, well, that makes me look at it differently." He could have been. He promised to be a uniter of, you know, remember the whole line about no red states, no blue states, I got American states, something to that effect. And you know, he's governed the complete opposite. And one of the biggest hypocrisies was the fact that he got up there, he derided the Republican Party. Uh, saying that we were, you know, isolated in our views um, with skepticism as it related to his vision of the environment, that we were, um, you know, blind to uh, realities of uh, what he depicted as progress against uh, terrorism globally, ISIS and al-Qaeda. And, you know, so he had all of these disparaging things to say, and then with a straight face turns around and says, the American people want us to be working together and to stop the fighting. It's like, well, can you just back it up like 15 minutes and take a look at what you just got done saying? Yeah. Because honestly, you would not have heard that level of criticism for another party from many president, you know, in our lifetime, even no. though there has been some criticism. So it's, it's really a double standard. I mean, he levels these criticisms all the time um, against people that he views as his political foes. He's reached out to no one. He has, he has almost no political friendships in Congress, I'll tell you that. So you are a huge party. fan of, of our president, I, I, I take it. In isolation. So I think it was a denial of reality. I mean, the ISIS is emerging as one of the great um, strategic and human rights threats of our lifetimes. It's only every day they're stronger than they were the day before. He depicted it as if they're somehow, you know, a, a Blip in the in the history of things, yeah. and, he's, and that they've contained the growth. They haven't. There's no like, no metric have they done that. Um, you know, our prestige around the world is as low as it's ever been. Mike, I mean, the, the, every alliance that we had going into this administration was already strained, and it's more strained today. He's out of touch, Michael. I really appreciate you being with us. I could go Absolutely on forever, but unfortunately, the producer's yelling at me. Michael, you can you give out your Twitter handle because I know you're very active on Twitter. Yeah. And you, you have like yeah, tons Please, of people um, follow you. Feel and, free to follow me on Twitter, and my Twitter ID is my name. It's Michael uh, Johns. Michael, I really appreciate uh, it's Michael Johns in Twitter. Michael, I really appreciate it. I want to have you back again. I, I don't know where the time went. Thank you, my friend. Okay, you're, look you're forward to it, Jack. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you.
Todd, I'll tell you, these people leave unbelievable lives. You and I are just working in the real estate mortgage business. These people are writing speeches. They're thinking about all these things and things like that. Real quick, what's going on in the real estate world? Next week, we're going to focus on- Oh, real estate. Yes. Next week, we have actually, you know who we have next week? The Siri lady, Susan Bennett. Is coming, but Look, but the, most of the show is going to be on real estate. The so, biggest news, real estate wise, wise uh, it was a, an article I just read in the New York Times. Uh, I, I think it was this morning or maybe yesterday that uh, the government is now going to probe uh, foreign foreign buyers of of condos and homes in New York and, and Miami. Miami, million dollars or more. It's right, all my notes. Talk so what do you think a, about that? Well, there's been a lot of money laundering. There's no doubt about it through the ages through real estate and. Uh, you know those two cities are, are hotbeds for that. People, people, foreign people, you know, are are looking to park their money somewhere. They don't even live in these places nine times out of ten, and they uh, they so put the money into these investments. They prop up, you know, the the real estate pricing models. They prop up all kinds of things. But they're bringing money to the economy. I agree. Look, I mean, without without them, look, Miami sides, would be in the toilet. Right. Well, the, the, it, they certainly wouldn't have rebounded like they did. No. Uh, so, you, look, I mean, it, it's good and it's bad, and I understand uh, I understand both sides of this argument. It's a tough one. I'm in the real estate business. Obviously, I like anything that, that makes real estate uh, thrive and healthy. Um, so I, I guess overall I'm against this. But. Todd, we have two minutes left. I'm going to give you a minute. Give out your contact information. Tell the world what you do. I know everyone knows what you do already, but tell everyone what you do. And give out your contact information. I am a commercial real estate advisor and broker. I work with Marcus and Millichap. A superb and supreme. Look, I mean, I don't like to toot my own horn, but we're extremely good at what we do, and I am extremely good at what I do. I will if, toot your own horn. If you are looking to invest in real estate, <laughs> if you Todd already Collin. are a real estate investor in income-producing properties, please don't hesitate to give me a call, 786-522-7021. Or you can find me, uh, you know, also at Twitter at Todd M. Cohen. Uh, you can also find me on our website at MarcusMillichap.com, MarcusMillichap.com. And uh, look, I, I can help you uh, make money in the real estate world. I can help you create and preserve wealth through real estate investments, tangible investments that produce a, a, a monthly yield. Next, and, w- next week, we're going to focus on real estate, and we're going to focus on mortgage lending, because I'm in the mortgage business, and I never talk about it. I don't and know I, why. You should I, talk I, about I what's know. going on in the financing world. I, I, the truth is, I wake up every day excited to be in the finance business, and I don't know, we're talking about politics, which depresses me, even though Michael Johns was a great guest, and I could talk to him forever. All our guests are great, and we love having them, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, we next all week. have businesses to run, and this is what we do. Next week. Todd, we got a minute left. Everything else good with you and the family? I can't complain. Okay, good. Never had a bad day in my life, right? I have plenty of them, but you don't want to hear. You, <laughs> you don't want to hear. Well, everyone, very much. This is Jack Miller. We really appreciate it. Hey, check out our new website, hjackmiller.com. It, we're just building it. It's going down sometimes, but check it out. We're going to have the web the web writer on soon. I thank everyone for tuning in. Wait, it's who are we having next week? Next week, we're going to have the Siri lady. You know well, Siri? Siri, the woman on my the, phone. The woman on your phone is coming out of your phone, and she's going to be on our show. She is going to materialize outside of my iPhone. Yes, like the, the I Dream of Genie. You'll rub oh it a little God. bit. Susan Bennett. 
likes our show. She contacted me, I don't know, a month ago. She is going to be our sh on our show next week. And it's interesting how she gets paid. Very interesting. She's a very interesting lady. And she's a singer. Has a beautiful voice. Can't wait. We got to wrap it up. Larry's going to kill me. Larry, thank you very much. Everyone have a great day. We appreciate you being with us. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to tune in next Thursday at 3 o'clock on 880 The Biz. If you want to send in your questions, comments, or ideas for shows, please email jackmiller at geltfinancial.com. Follow us on Facebook at Jack Miller Down to Business or on Twitter at hjackmiller1. Turn it around, turn it around, turn it around. You've got to turn.